Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of Scale by Bangladesh Angels. In this podcast series, we talk to entrepreneurs and investors who have built and invested in businesses that have gone on to raise or generate revenues of millions of dollars, employ hundreds or more employees, and serve millions of users about the secrets of scaling a company. In this episode, we have our guest, Akil Jabbar, the investment director at Horizon Capital, and joining him is our host, Nijar Rahman, the CEO of Bangladesh Angels. Hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to subscribe. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, the Horizon Capital team. Akhil Jabbar is the investment director and GP at Horizon Capital, a leading SaaS operations group consisting of marketing and finance experts who specialize in growth marketing and mergers and acquisitions. They're focused on partnering up with handpicked B2B SaaS companies with the aim of helping founders maximize company growth with the help of their data-driven approach. In addition, through the help of their global network of investors and strategic acquirers, they also help companies raise funds or undertake M&A processes. The four core values of Horizon Capital are integrity, autonomy, commitment, and personal development. And their entire team strives towards living up to these values continuously uh, and seeking partners who share them. Akhil is a growth marketing expert who also specializes in business operations. He started his career as an engineer before entering the world of digital marketing. He then took on the role of CEO at two different digital marketing firms, 99 Social and Increased Visibility Inc. Before joining Horizon, Akhil was a partner and operations director at Wire Investors, a private equity firm specializing in digital asset acquisitions. Uh, Akhil, welcome to Ben. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Nature. Look forward to it. Absolutely. And I know we're uh, joined by Pierre as well from Horizon. Uh, Pierre, welcome uh, as well to you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, feel free to, uh, you know, uh, you know, tag team and, you know, we'd love to kind of get both of your perspectives as we kind of go through these questions. So I'll, I'll put this to both of you. Uh, you know, it's always good to just learn more about where people are coming from and, and how they get into, got into the space. So where did you guys grow up and, and what did you aspire to be when you were younger? Yeah, I, I can get started. I guess, uh, you know, my parents were first generation immigrants. They moved to, to Canada before me and my older sister were born. So I was born and raised in, you know, Ottawa, Canada, which was the capital city. Uh, you know, we grew up, you know, below the poverty line most of the life, but, uh, you know, made, made it our way up. And, uh, you know, we moved out to Alberta where I finished up schooling, started my professional career. And that's where I, you know, got into the oil and gas space. And then what I wanted to be growing up, is this as a, as a child, as a little kid of like what got me excited every morning or, or are we talking later on in life? Uh, maybe even later on. Yeah. Whichever one was the most vivid, I guess, in terms of your desire. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, th- I think later on, I wanted to, you know, get into business. I understand the, the value and I, you know, that got me excited. But I think as a kid, I think I wanted to be like a wrestler. I think that was it. You know, I love The Rock. You know, I still grow- growing up. I look up, look up to him today, you know, for a lot of things, his character, his personality. And, you know, even now his, he's building his own empire to several brands. So I think that's where, where my aspirations were. <laughs> I remember that because like every Monday, you know, I would watch Monday Night Raw, uh, right? And then, you know, yeah. if you smell what the rock is. Yeah, exactly. 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 I even yeah. perfected my eyebrow raise. So I got that going. <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, this will be an audio <laughs> podcast, so maybe we can't practice that. Uh, but uh, and, and what about you, Pierre? What, uh, you know, where did you grow up and, and what did you aspire to be? Yeah, so, so basically I grew up in France, uh, as you can tell from the accent as well, uh, in, in Paris, in the western part of France. And uh, actually, fairly quickly, I, I kind of wanted to be a trader. So 
the reason why is because I thought the trader would be the guy, you know, keeping up with what's happening in the world, uh, looking at geopolitics and trying to figure all things out and be the first one to figure out what's going to be the impact on the stock market. And then when I actually went to business school, I quickly realized that no traders are not those type of guys anymore. They're more, you know, like mathematicians, guys doing very complicated algorithm. And everything I was trying to get from the idea of what a trader is, I realized that I could get it from being a PE investors, doing private equity and business uh, angel investing and VC investments was quite similar in terms of everything that I was looking for. And on top of that, you actually had that social component where you spend your days talking to very uh, smart entrepreneurs who have a vision and teach you how they grew their, their company. So after business school, I, I started in private equity, then moved to, uh, to PwC where I worked uh, in transaction services in order just to uh, really get better at everything related to financial analysis. And after that, uh, I started as an independent consultant and that's how we met uh, with, with Akil online. And we started working together and, and growing our capital like this. That's awesome. I love that story because I mean, I'm kind of reminded of like, you know, I think the the last three jobs I've gotten were through online connections, just hitting mm -hmm. up people on LinkedIn. Um, so I think it just kind of speaks to the story of or, or the power of networking. Right. And, and in fact, I think I, I found Akil through online as well. And he was kind enough to answer my LinkedIn. So Akil, you know, thanks a lot for uh, for doing that. And, and, and you know, this is the genesis of this conversation. Uh, you know, no, thank you. And, and thank you for both for kind of that um, context. Uh, I'd love to just learn more about, I guess, then how do we kind of get towards Horizon? I know, Akil, you know, you have a very interesting kind of perspective here because you're in petroleum engineering, so hard, hard engineering, <laughs> to suddenly mm. go to digital marketing. And I know you worked with a couple of companies and, and kind of learned the ropes there. But could you tell us about, I guess, you know, how did that transition come about? You know, what, what made you kind of <laughs> pursue that? Sure, sure. Yeah. So now I worked in the, the, the white collar industry for, you know, several years. And I think I made the, the full time leap into entrepreneurship almost seven or eight years ago now. But, you know, even while I was in universities, I actually launched one of my first you know, actual businesses. Uh, it was a recruitment firm where I was hiring tech talent for startups around the world. And that's where I learned and made a lot of the you know, rookie mistakes, like just taking too much time to setting up things like, you know, your logo design and incorporating all that. But, you know, it did pretty good, but, uh, you know, it wasn't something I was too passionate about. My passion was actually always around how to increase my cash returns from the money I was making to replace my income, right? I was in that stage of life where I was like, I, you know, I need to get out of corporate. I need to replace my income and, and do something else. But I actually started with investing in the stock market when I think I was 17 years old, 17 years old, and I learned a lot of, you know, hard mistakes. Um, but after a little bit of time, I, I learned quickly after that was, a lot of this wasn't for me because, A, you don't have a lot of control over, you know, so many factors of when, when trying to pick the right stocks. Um, you know, a business can be affected by the, you know, some news on the other side of the world. And, you know, that could plum plummet your stocks overnight and, and there's not much you can do. Um, and then you're also competing with, with the guys on Wall Street, right? They have a lot more sophisticated tech and experience. This is what they do for a living. And trying to pick better deals than them to invest in, I don't think is, is that easy, right? That's like playing pickup basketball against LeBron James. I don't think you're going to have stand a chance, right? So, um, and that's, that's when I actually came across a book. I think many of you are familiar with, you know, Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, I learned about, you know, gener you know, generating, investing into cash, generating assets, controlling your own income time, and, you know, obviously leveraging a bit of debt effectively. So 
I had some of the cash I used. I saved, invested in some, some real estate in Canada. Um, I bought my first one and then I bought my second one. And you know, here I am about 25 years old. I, I was like, this is just too slow for me, right? I'm, I'm 25. I'm impatient. I want results fast. Like I need results today, but um, I still like real estate. I still think it's a good investment, but I, I look at it more of a, of a long-term game. And, you know, maybe when I'm, you know, uh, kind of a uh, investment, uh, you know, uh, an asset for the long-term, maybe for 20 years or so. Um, so then from there, I invested in a physical business. I have a physical franchise gym in Canada. I learned about the recurring revenue model, local marketing, LTV churn. Uh, the same thing still felt the limitation of that model, right? You're, busy, you're physically dependent in one location. It's super expensive to scale, right? Every time you want to you know, replicate it, you're looking at half a million to a million dollars. Uh, but same thing, I still look at it about uh, you know, five to 10 year return. So still pretty good, but I need it faster and faster. And that's when I learned about you know, digital and online businesses. Uh, I actually bought my first online business from a brokerage called Empire Flippers. Uh, it was an affiliate site at the time. I think I paid less than you know, $50,000 and, and I was hooked. And that's where I learned all about the, the online marketing, you know, conversion rate optimization, SEO, hiring writers, affiliate marketing, all that good stuff. And that's around when I, when I quit my job then. And a year or so later, I joined a firm uh, called Wired Investors. They were, they were essentially doing the same thing, right? They were building a portfolio, but they were just doing it at a larger scale, right? They're doing bigger seven-figure acquisitions and, you know, help to raise some capital, get involved in some of the deals. And then, you know, they were doing, they were looking at a deal at the time called $99 Social and, uh, you know, put my, my hat and name into the, the hat for being CEO. Um, and, you know, within five months of when, when, when I took over and, you know, was managing it, I uh, was able to double the earnings of the company. And that's when, you know, over time took over another company and they, they, helped, they asked me to move to become a group CEO, the, the SaaS portfolio. Uh, and then about two years ago, that's when I left the group and I decided to focus on, on launching Horizon Capital. And that's where we really focus on, you know, SaaS companies as our expertise. And that's where I enjoy most of my time today. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, you know, I mean, this is quite fascinating that you could kind of go and just find an online business like you would on Amazon, <laughs> like you would, you know, pick out shoes or something and, and just, Hey, you know, I'm going to run this and, and, and you can do it. And, and, and that's the beauty of, I think, um, uh, the, the world that we live in. And I think, you know, we'll discuss more about how we might kind of replicate this model for Bangladesh uh, later on in the conversation, but definitely, you know, uh, you know, Akhil and Pierre, let's kind of deeper dive into the model of Horizon Capital. And, and this is a great segue for it. So, you know, and feel free to alternate, uh, you know, whatever is easiest, um, but curious. So, you know, just uh, first the business model, right? So what I understand is, you know, you guys do a, a few things. So one is kind of training, um, you know, another is kind of consulting and M&A kind of investment um, advisory, which then in turn funds acquisitions of these types of, you know, online digital SaaS businesses that you're talking about. Is, is that the, the business model in a nutshell? Yeah, I mean, our core model is, you know, that's, that's what we start with. We partner with B2B SaaS companies. They're, essentially what they're doing is to is looking to accelerate growth. And that's one way or the other, whether that's through, through capital, not only with capital, but with a partner who understands operations, marketing, how to scale, and then also, if needed, we'll connect them with our network, which could be, you know, other founders, other portfolio companies, investors. Um, so we're kind of like that, that suite. So you know, from the, the whole kind of spectrum of you know how to, to grow a SaaS. Um, maybe maybe Pierre, if you have anything else you want to add to that. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the idea. You know, the, the idea is to take the, the in-house skills that we have uh, in Horizon, and the core skills we have is private equity investing, it's financial due diligence, is digital growth operation, it's MNA plus a network that we can tap into. So the whole idea is to kind of have a mix of entrepreneurial spirit where we grow our own company uh, within our raising capital, but also consultancy where we help 
other company grow and equity partnership where we want to be long-term partner and provide those skills that we have in us to those companies who are either struggling or don't necessarily know uh, what the next step is going to be where we can come in you know and be there to to, to help them first grow add uh, uh, increase their value help them raise capital and help them exit as well Excellent, excellent, um, and and totally see where the the skill sets kind of come into focus. Um, I know you have a syndicate, and I think we understand what a syndicate is. But you know, from your perspective, what does it mean to be a member of your syndicate or operators group, and and what are the requirements to be one, and 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 yeah, yeah, what are the requirements of membership? Uh, so the the investment club, right? So with, with that, I mean, it's it's value. Just you know, you know, capital is one thing. I mean, we we do have a minimum check size of 100k. That's kind of the, the the one thing but the value beyond that is just is beyond the capital right that could be operational that could be the network you have or any kind of business background to basically contribute um to to the decision making of the businesses that we acquire uh, but at the end of the day what we really want to see is that the engagement and feedback when we bring deals to the table so we like to you know talk to the all of our investors get to know them right fit and um you know they, they can be value adds to the portfolio beyond just the, the capital Got it. Um, then on the sort of acquisition process and, and the screening, first, you know, what kind of companies are you looking for? Um, having looked a little bit at your portfolio, there seems to be a slight overweight uh, towards kind of marketing and sales mm-hmm. software, but curious, you know, what the, what the thesis is when it comes to the sector. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that just happened kind of naturally. It seems like what we seem to attract. And I, actually, we're working on another business. We're going to start, I think, in November, I think one or two, and we have in the pipeline, and both are also and marketing tech, B2B SaaS. Um, generally, the founders who are usually coming to us have a strong product background, a really great SaaS solution, and they've grown organically or just through one channel, and they really haven't done much for, for marketing. Uh, that's the, generally the, the company's uh, boot or, or VC back, doesn't matter. Uh, one to five million in ARR range, profitable or at least cash uh, break even. We don't look for, for companies that are, are burning. Um, you know, VC kind of backed uh, businesses, uh, monthly 3%, um, at least three years of revenue and uh, growth, at least I think, you know, 10% is the minimum, but we're generally looking at you know, 20, 30%. You know, and and uh, to, uh, to add on that, uh, there's also, since we're also looking at companies outside of the US and North America, uh, um, a good um, a good type of company is basically who've managed to grow to their limited uh, country. We've, uh, we've looked at, uh, at companies in Poland, for instance, and looking to go outside of their national monistic markets uh, and want to grow. And obviously, the, the North America or Europe yeah, is the next target for them. And since we uh, the, those are markets that we know, you know, we are generally well positioned to be the partners to handle that side of their market and that side of their growth. Interesting. So that's another value addition is, I think, market expansion. Um, as you're talking about and particularly kind of playing the arbitrage game uh, between these markets. Uh, you know, wanted to just hone in on that a little bit, right? So the one to 5 million ARR range. Um, do you work with typically early, earlier stage companies? So these sound like companies that are relatively mature, at least in the current iteration of the business model. You know, just curious how that number came about as sort of the sweet spot. So on the on the acquisition side, that's kind of our, our range that we look at. One to five is kind of what we found a speed 
sweet spot where there's still product, you know, close to product market fit and, and you know, less uh, risk in return for, for our investors. And we feel we can make the most impact. On the other side of our business model, where we, we focus on the, the partnership, um, we generally do work with the, you know, earlier stage startups, uh, you know, at least, you know, let's say at least, you know, 200K uh, in AR, so a little bit smaller. Um, they've they've brought, built a good product and same thing. They just haven't uh, been able to prove anything on the marketing side. Makes sense. Uh, another criteria being the monthly churn rate, and I think it was around 3%. That's sort of a, a threshold or kind of the, a, a guiding factor. It seemed, I mean, as a non-SaaS person, that seems like very hard to achieve, 3% churn. Like that, you know, um, and just curious, I mean, does that mean mostly enterprise here? Does that mean, you know, uh, what kind of companies do, does that entail then if, if they have such low churn? Uh, I think we're, we're, yeah, we're not seeing that. Right? We're seeing like for SMB and mid-market, right? So actually, when you think about it, try, try to think about it annually. Like if you take a 5% churn rate and that converts into a 60% churn rate, and uh, sorry, monthly, they convert to 60% annually. So that means that the company has lost more than half of their customers within one year. So at, at first, uh, like we started with that threshold at 5% and we quickly realized that uh, some of companies that fall within that 5%, we're still losing too many customers and we saw a high risk with that. So that basically means that roughly that uh, you, you have to renew 35, around 35% of your customer, which is still a high number of, of, uh, for me, but at least is more manageable. And, and basically on the SaaS market, it's quite common to have companies that have less than 1% churn uh, per month. Uh, so, so like the most successful one, and those are generally the, the VC back one, right? And become unicorn, have negative churn because they onboard customer and the longest the, the customer stay, the, the, the more the, the more revenue they manage to direction. Which makes sense. So, I mean, you're looking for a certain level of, I guess, uh, stability when it comes to the customer base. And, and they prove that kind of out over time and hence, you know, the 3% monthly or 36 month uh, percent kind of annual churn. Another question on the, on these kinds of acquisitions, you know, in these cases, in, in, uh, I'm sure it's different for each company, but are the CEOs of the founding teams typically looking to actively sell? Are they looking to get out of the business or they're more looking for like a long-term partner? You know, what, what's kind of the profile of the, the CEOs that you want to work with? I think we have both, right? Like we, we have the, the ones coming to us, like we have a lot of inbound, you know, lead lead flow people coming to saying, hey, like we're looking to sell, we're at the stage, we've, we want to know what our valuation is and, you know, what what can you expect? And then we also have a team, you know, reaching out, you know, peer managers that probably can speak a little bit, but, you know, we're, we're going to people and saying, hey, like you, we've done a little bit of research. We know you're probably at the stage of the size of what we're looking for. You've been in business for a while and we're like, hey, like, do you want to have that conversation? And I think most people if approaches you and say, hey, uh, um, you know, do you want to sell your business? They're at least interested, right? They want to hear what they're going to get. They're going to, they probably have a number in mind. And generally that's where the, the maybe the conversation falls apart because, you know, they're at a later stage of, you know, what they're expecting. Um, but if they're too early, right? Like they're in growth mode, like they're super focused and they're like, look, I don't want to give this any time right now. Let's, let's chat again in, in a year or two, but uh, I don't know. Is there more you're seeing there, Pierre? Yeah. So, so it, it really all depends on the psychology of the founder. Generally, if they are first-time founder and they've been growing their company for say seven years, they feel like that if they can cash out and get a few million out of the deal, you know they're going to be set financially for life. 
So they are more interested to sell at this stage. If you start again to a multi uh, multi founder, uh, we, we we see more people saying, "Look, guys, we're happy to have a partner. However, we're not going to sell 100 percent, or we're going to do it at a very high valuation, right? We which wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be able to match. But overall, every conversation uh, is different, and we're we're just trying to make the most out of it. Uh, the only thing I would I would add is when someone comes to us and say, oh, I want to exit the business, we generally super extra careful to make sure that they are not just trying to uh, to, to do a sales with the right timing, where we take over the business and six months later we re realize that you know the, the business is just um, you know, just, just planning. Right, surprise, right? You don't you don't want those negative yeah. surprises in in the business, um, you know, when, once you come in, um, and then on the structure of the deals themselves. Once again, I'm I'm sure it's you know it varies from deal to deal. But one the the first question that comes to mind is how come you know let's say even if the management team stays intact or or stays to an extent, you know, how come you're looking to take majority stakes um, on these uh, on these companies? Uh, so we actually started with that model, right? And that's what, when we started kind of going out to market, we're saying, let's take over. That's kind of what we're familiar with, like, you know, at least 51% where we have some kind of control. The the founder can move. They don't want to be operational. They, and, and we just kind of take over the business. Um, but then that's when we kind of moved towards that growth, uh, you know, equity and partnership model, because we found a lot of the conversations I think Pierre uh, were with was like, look, we're not, we're not ready to sell, but we do want to, you know, we'll work with you. We do see the value that you bring, but we still have, you know, a lot of room to grow. And if you, you can work with us, let's get there first, then maybe we can sell it together. So um, I think that's why we, we made that shift. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, on the, on the, I guess, the, the structure on, on the syndicate side itself. So you, you pull together these investments from your, your syndicate. Um, do you put these into an SPV? And for that SPV, do you guys, you know, take a management fee? You know, what, what's the business model there when you deal with the in investors? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an SPV. So we'll set up a separate entity. Um, you know, we may come up for, come in for an, ourselves or maybe, you know, up to 10% of the deal. Our, our fees are generally, you know, rolled into the deal kind of for the, the first transaction. And then our management fee, then like the VC or PE model because we're actually very hands-on. Uh, we're not just putting money in and kind of letting. Um, and then a lot of it, so it's based on the upside performance and the growth. So as the company grows, we get a you know percentage of growth based of the business. Right. So that's that's separate from a carry, right? Um, that's not until you exit. So you are you are taking I guess a management fee based on I guess incremental sales growth and things like that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Got yeah. it. Got it. Um, with regards to you know. Uh, yeah, which makes sense. And then another question, you know, so it, it does, is there a possibility of leverage here when you take over these companies because these are cash flow generating businesses, they're profitable? Is there a way to kind of, you know, spike your returns or increase your returns by way of debt into these structures? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a quasi equity partner and based out of Canada and we work with who I think they've, they've designed their actually debt program specifically for SaaS companies. So where a lot of their principal is delayed. Uh, and the interest, you know, the and most of the payments and returns they're made are, you know, three, four years in or, or at exit. So we definitely look at, you know, leveraging them if, if, if possible. But I think generally based on the numbers we run, Pierre, I don't like, you know, putting in actual debt, I think it doesn't usually work for, for our model. It, it depends. It really depends. Like if you end up with a very highly cash flow 
generative uh, business, like uh, we, we've seen a couple, then obviously you can increase the leverage, right? Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, it's also all based on the multiple of EBITDA that you want to put up on the company. Uh, what is going to be your growth strategy? Because uh, um, generally with SaaS businesses, when you invest, you invest in front and through the fact that people are recurring revenue, you get the revenue over the long term, right? But that does mean that you're going to have a through in cash that you need to uh, you know, you need to plan with if you want to put debt on the uh, uh, on the company on the deal. That's a that's a great question as well. You know, do you have a sort of a target range in terms of a multiple on EBITDA that you apply? Is it price to sales? You know, is it DCF? You know, how do you value these companies? I'm going to share an article actually in the chat group if you you know how we value SaaS businesses, but maybe Pierre, you know, we, we base it up basically off of. Uh, ARR or stationary earnings, but maybe Pierre, Pierre is the expert in that. Yeah, so, so, so the, the reality, when, when it comes to each company, uh, opinion, there is maybe a different, you can do a DCF, sure, but you have so many variables and so many um, uh, potential variation in your future cash flow that the DCF doesn't necessarily make sense. It's more like a double to double check your, your valuation, right? So what we're trying to do is more high-level valuation based on comparable what the market is telling us and what the market does. And for those type of company growing at less than 30 to 40% year-on-year, we're just generally trying to target between two to four times ARR. And we double-check with EBITDA as well. And that's generally going to fall within, say, four to eight times EBITDA, right? And the reality is we know that there are deals made Higher valuation than that, we're trying not to play this game because the view we have is at the moment there is a lot of cash on the market, uh, there is a lot of deals happening, and prices are driving up, uh, are definitely going, going up. So we have to follow that trend, obviously, and the price uh, increase when you buy, but they also increase when you sell. So, so in the end, you, you still uh, can kind of make money at the end. However, we're really trying to be very strict on not overpaying. And that's the advantage of our model. Since we don't have like a fund that we have to, uh, to invest within the next six months, we can, we can make sure that when we do a deal, we do it at a price that we think uh, falls within uh, the, a reasonable amount. Right. In valuation. Because that deal by deal structure kind of gives you that flexibility of uh, waiting for the right deal to, to come along. But then obviously when you have to do it, you got to move very fast and uh, you have to have the infrastructure in place uh, concurrently as well. Um, you know, quite interesting on the other side, like, uh, so that's quite an interesting framework. Um, I guess the other side is, you know, how long do you intend to hold your stakes? And, and second, you know, what makes sense as a reasonable kind of return expectation for you guys? Because these are not these are not startup businesses, right? Uh, and you're not coming in at the angel stage, for example. But they're not exactly, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, they're kind of maturing, but not necessarily. So curious, you know, what the what what kind of returns make sense? So generally, the first year we're reinvesting most of the 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 cash flow back into the business into growth and you know really driving it up um, and then we think you know at least the 36 to 48 month plan makes sense so now we have two or three years of really um, you know driving up performance so uh, you know that's kind of our plan is three to four years to exit uh, our, our i think the you know at the low end we're looking at least 30 percent um, that's kind of on the minimum of making this uh viable for investors and for the risk they're taking but you know, we target at least 
you know, 60% plus is what, what we kind of expect. Got it. And, and who are typically, you know, who would you exit out to, you know, what are some platforms or acquirers that would make sense for you? Um, so, I mean, we're, we're getting, like I said, if we're getting a lot of interest, let's say, like we're saying the, the marketing tech space, I think there's a scenario of maybe selling a, as a roll-up strategy to, to a big, bigger PE firm. Um, but we also have a large network of some strategic buyers. And that's kind of our, our biggest reason for building our M&A practice was actually building those relationships with all these, you know, strategics and corporate development space. So we know what they're looking for. We know what the size, what the type of business is. Uh, and now we have that, 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 you know, that conversation, that, that relationship with them. And, you know, when there's a time to exit, um, we can reach out and, and uh, you know, start that conversation. Yeah. And we also have a sense and good relationship with founders, very active on any market, uh, like micro acquire that you may have heard of. Uh, they're developing a new platform, digital platform to sell SaaS businesses. And for the moment, they target small deals, but given how fast they're going and, and the fact that uh, they raised a decent amount of money recently, um, I feel like within the next three to four years, I wouldn't be surprised if deals over uh, five, 10 million uh, start to happen on the platform. Quite interesting, and I think you know. I, I think we we probably need to look into micro acquire uh, a little bit more. Uh, no, thank you so much for to both of you for that. I think you know we're much clearer on 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 the model and and the the approach of the investment piece. I'm um, I'm now curious on the the actual playbook, right? As, as you kind of go in and you create kind of value. Uh, within the companies that you um, you know work with, and so first, you know, what sort of I guess OKRs um, do you establish? You know, when you come into a, a business, like what sort of metrics are you trying to kind of um, engage as the north stars to improve the company? So I think you know growth is one thing, but we, we look at it, you know every business is unique, so we, I can't say there's a one specific one. If there's a playbook that we're applying, um, generally we like to front load conversion rate optimization. I think that's the kind of quickest win. Um, if you apply, you can you can uh, you know see some some quick returns on your on your on the business. And here's maybe just a quick tactical tip here for people listening in. I think the quickest thing you can do is actually test your headline. Um, you know, if you haven't done it for your SaaS and you're getting fake, like just uh, you know test it out. Test different copy there. Eighty percent of your users stay there, and that's where when they first arrive at their site, and they're going to make most of their decision there. So um, you know, I, I would suggest maybe doing that if if people are listening. Um, in terms of OKRs, like you know, we're setting one to two per quarter. If at the time, let's say we're focusing on conversion rate optimization, then we're going to write, okay, we want to increase conversions by, you know, X percent to this percentage. Okay, let's say by 30%. Um, so these are some, some tests we want to run. These are some experiments, who's going to do what, and these are, you know, a weekly kind of check-ins. Um, if we're top of the funnel focused, okay, like, let's say we want to focus on SEO, let's drive some links back to the site, drive the, the authority up. Uh, okay, so now we have to do guest podcasts, we have guest articles, and let's start building backlinks, and, you know, how many do we need to get, and just kind of reverse engineer that back and, and, and kind of build from there. Got it. Um, you know, I know we had uh, uh, our mutual friend TK on, on the, uh, on the call oh, yeah. a few months back and he was just kind of saying, you know, what, it, I mean, what, I mean, obviously it's, it's not too simplistic. It, it can be too simplified, but you know, one, um, one tactic that, you know, founders don't use often is just raising prices, like, you know, just raising prices and, and, and trying to kind of maybe, um, you know, renegotiate contracts. I mean, do you, is that something you also look at is whether or not you could raise prices or renegotiate some of these existing contracts in the businesses? So we're negotiating sales contracts. I don't think we've done much, but I mean, if they're, if they're coming up for renewal, I think it's a, it's a good time to, to have that conversation, but hundred percent pricing is, is a super, you know, uh, 
you know, easy kind of uplift of, you know, testing out different pricing and, and seeing how that impacts conversions. I think that's part of uh, our initial testing we do. And yeah, raising prices is, a, is an easy one. Yeah. And, and on top of that, with companies that are like sub 1 million or within that range, it's actually quite common to see, uh, to see them with non-sophisticated pricing strategy, where they have, for instance, one plan. So one of the first thing you do in that case, you introduce two new plans, right? And you 90% of the case, you generally have immediate uh, positive results from that. That's quite interesting. Um, another one, so going back to, I guess, conversion rate optimization, but at, at the top of the funnel, you know, what sort of things uh, do you help, you know, these companies do when it comes to, I guess, increasing, you know, more, um, you know, more people or more prospects at the top of the funnel uh, and curious, you know, what, what, what are some things you can help them do? So top of the funnel, right. is more just, you know, driving more traffic to the website. So that's what through you know, SEO, so pay channels through integration or other channel partners um, or, you know, through, through cross uh, marketing with different affiliate partners as well. And then from there is like, okay, we have, we have a bunch of traffic coming to the site. Now, how do we maximize the value of each, you know, uh, you know, page view uh, we break it down by user by, by lead that comes in. So when it's a freemium model, then okay, every lead that comes in, how do we now convert that? So that's focusing on our onboarding. Let's focus on, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the email marketing. Um, so we look at the entire kind of the, the funnel and then we, we kind of look at areas of you know, optimization across each, each side of it. So when, like I said, like onboarding from the sales call to the demo, um, setting up metrics around that and how we can improve it. Another one that I found interesting is just kind of monetizing email lists. Um, and mm -hmm. I know you help the companies do that. You know, could you tell us what are some ways to do that as well? So I think this is something that people just leave, you know, they, they might set up like an auto email marketing platform, you know, people uh, subscribe and then they have, you know, five or six emails going out and they don't really segment it out. So I think having a good segmentation is probably the first thing of, you know, uh, filtering and, and uh, you know, qualifying different customers. And then from there, uh, you know, focusing on the middle of the funnel is like really engaging them to get them back onto, you know, some, some, some kind of conversation because most people sign up for a SaaS and uh, they might use it a little bit and they might, you know, may forget about it. And the best way is just keep re-engaging them, having a, you know, weekly, uh, monthly update with them and getting them back in to remind them of why uh, your tools, you know, changing, what's the updates happening and, and get them to, you know, re-engage with your, with your tool. And that's going to end uh, eventually, you know, drive LTV up and, and revenue. Another thing that you do is kind of, you know, work on kind of lead generation and outreach campaigns. What are some core elements of, of such campaigns and, and what are the, your preferred kind of platforms to be able to do that? So the two main ones are going to be email and, and LinkedIn. I think we even do this in-house for ourselves, which, you know, Pierre manages, but uh, yeah, maybe Pierre, you want to speak a little about that? Yeah. And that will also comes back to, uh, uh, to the question that uh, we had from Navojits on how we maintain a good deal flow uh, so ba basically on top of like the inbound deal flow that we get from our presence uh, online presence and from participating into uh, the online events also writing articles etc uh, uh, etc et we also have a network of MNA advisors who send us deals and we have all the part of uh, the outreach so to do that we managed to find database of SaaS companies uh, that then we check if we think they fall within the, the SaaS of the company that we want to, to, to reach out to. Uh, and based on experience, we usually uh, use the number of employees as the best proxy. Because you have a lot of sources out there that tells you how much 
um, revenue companies are generating, from my experience, most of them are actually wrong and sometimes are really, really wrong. Like I've reached out to, uh, to companies that were listed as doing 5 million in revenue and they were doing only 10K, 10, 10K a month. So uh, the way then we structure the outreach, we use tools like uh, WeConnect, for instance, on LinkedIn. That, that help you know you know we uh, with automating the, the outreach. Uh, uh, we also use um, other automated tools for for email uh, like uh, Apollo. Uh, that's pretty efficient as well. Also to to, to get the data of the people. Um, however, I, I think that's important for line of of business. We do a lot of work before actually using those uh, automated tools as emailing. Every person that we email, we've actually at least went on their LinkedIn profile. We check that the company fits our criteria from, from what we can see and that the website uh, looks good and out to targeted people, right? Uh, and sometimes we also try to add a bit of personalization to the, uh, to the email uh, or to, uh, to the message by looking up articles they, they wrote or events they attended so that we can actually have a one-liner which is specific dedicated to them and based on that we way higher conversion and response rates like typically for from a, for a linkedin campaign to 100 people you reach out to 40 40 percent actually accept the um, uh, the invite 20 percent respond and 10 percent agree on a call roughly another one another one uh, and, and thank you for that another one um I saw that you guys do is, you know, a big part, and you, you mentioned kind of um, changing the headline, but redesigning websites, right, with better call to action or better integration of chatbots and things like that. Could you, could you I mean, is that expertise you have in-house or do you work with the existing kind of web team of the company? Um, so something we have in-house, so we have a conversion rate optimization team we work closely with and um, designers design. I mean, we, we just have some kind of frameworks that we've seen that convert better. Um, on your landing or, or even, you know, within, if you have some couple of blog articles that are you know, you're ranking well, you're getting a lot of traffic, generally audit, you'll see, okay, these are the top 10 pages getting most of the traffic. Let's see what we could do, whether they're putting different uh, engagement and call to actions throughout it to try to drive more leads. But uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how we were. So those are on the conversion rate or conversion side, you know, more revenue generation, LTV and those kinds of things. What about helping them save uh, costs? So definitely trying to lower the cost of acquisition, but what are other ways in which you help them kind of optimize their, the cost structure? So operations is obviously the one thing we'll look at, you know, if we have some kind of redundancy and, you know, overlap within our team, which, you know, we might be able to reduce some, some ops there, uh, you know, Outsourcing is one thing. I mean, generally, we, we don't like to make too many changes up front, but if there's something there, we'll we'll, we'll explore it. Um, and then, you know, cost of acquisition. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big thing we look at. Once we're uh, even 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 sometimes before we we do an investment, we'll run some experiments. Um, we'll run a full audit, and we you know we have some some specialists who can really scale. You know, focus on on SaaS company. You know, if, we're, if we're running a two million dollars per month ad budget, um, there's no issue. We can we can manage that as well. So. Quite interesting. Um, I'll, I'll just kind of maybe we can talk about a couple of, I guess, case studies now. Um, and and mm -hmm. maybe we can kind of contextualize some of the discussion we had. So one is postalytics, uh, right? So uh, you helped kind of you improve the conversion rate by 25% in four months, which is quite remarkable. You know, once again, for the, those in the room, you know, could you explain what the company does, uh, what the engagement was about, and what are some levers you pulled to, to be able to achieve that? 
So postalytics, uh, I mean, most of you are familiar with uh, direct mail, right? You, if you want to print a, a postcard or something in the mail, you want to send it, um, you would go out to a print shop and, you know, hand them your design. And it was, you know, very inefficient of how it was run. Uh, with this, you know, they built a, a platform, a suite online. You go in, you build your, your, your design template online, just like a, an email marketing, like a MailChimp. Um, they have a network of partners throughout the U.S. And, and I think now they're expanding. We're expanding to Canada, I think, next month. Um, and it's simply done. I mean, it goes to a print network. We can design it and we, we go out to, you, know, you can send it out to, you just upload a list and you can send it out, no issue. Um, in terms of what the, the engagement in, with them, uh, we had the partnership model. So um, they were not ready to sell. They want us to they keep growing. Uh, and so we decided to work with them. Let's focus on conversion rate optimization. Uh, and then we went to, 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 you know, start working on different channels. And, um, you know, here's the case study here of how we did it. Um, you know, we do, the way our kind of partnership models work is we reduce our, our cash fees. So we aligned our, our comp structure so that we actually reinvest most of our fees back into the company. Uh, and then we look to, to raise a, a growth equity round during the near future and then uh, eventually exit once we hit, I think, um, close to 10 million is the goal with this one. Excellent. And another one, this one's from outside North America. So this one's Green Digital um, in, in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And, you know, read that, you know, you helped increase the lifetime value of each franchisee by 3x, which once again, seems quite uh, remarkable. So could you explain what Green Digital does and, and the business model and how you help them? So they're a, a franchiser. So I think it's called, uh, what's that digital marketing, digital marketers. And I think they're based out of the US. So similar model um, where, you know, they help people set up a, a firm, you know, in, in, in Brazil. Uh, we actually ran a few experiments with them before the acquisition, mainly on, on the pay channels. And all we did is, you know, we, we made some switches on the audiences. So we actually pulled their list, ran some lookalike audiences, tested some different ads. And we, we produced our, like, we saw CPA reduction by like more than 70%. Um, so that was, you know, got quite interesting, you know, caught our interest there. And the second thing we did was, as you said, increase our pricing. What we found was we, we were actually, actually drastically underpriced in the market. Um, like let's, you know, I think it was, you know, the, the average price of all the competition was something around like $25,000 and, you know, we were charging like five or 10. So just, you know, people, it sounds good, right? Hey, we're the cheapest guys out there, but it actually scared people away. We were feeling people were like, no, this is too cheap. There must be not good. And that perception is everything, right? The value, if you're too cheap, sometimes it actually detracts a lot of the people who, who want to work with you. Um, and second thing we thought we found and added to that was adding recurring fees. So these were generally, you know, two-year, you know, engagements or contracts that people would come in. Uh, they pay the one-time fee and, you know, they'd be engaged for one or two months, three months, even though we're there, we give them support. Uh, but at the end of the day, they have to do the work. Uh, but they would drop off, you know, you, you, you keep bothering them like, yeah, I'm busy, they get caught up. And um, so what we found is by just adding those those fees, where now they're like, okay, I've, I've got some pressure here. And I think this came from, you know, looking at some of the real estate models out there, right? If you want to become a realtor, you see people who are paying those high fees, those are the ones who are performing a little better, uh, you're going to get that engagement, right? And, and that's what we found is they, they had a lot more commitment to the work. And, you know, they reduced the drop off, they, they got better results. And, and overall, that increased the, the LTV. Quite interesting and kind of staying with that theme of kind of, you know, what are some international opportunities and, you know, one opportunity I'd love to discuss with you guys more in depth and, and going forward in the future. And I've had a few kind of initial conversations with some of our members as well, particularly in the outsourcing industry in Bangladesh. And the idea would be whether it's, you know, let's say an accounting company or, you know, a graphics editing company taking over, uh, you know, these smaller SMBs um, in markets like Europe or North America, and then outsourcing elements like lead gen or back office operations or content to a low cost locale like Bangladesh. 
uh, and using that as part of the and and you know so potentially taking over these companies through a, a search fund or an SPV model and then doing you know reducing costs and then over time maybe um, selling them off. But yeah, just curious, you know, has that some has that been something you guys have pursued before? Maybe say in the Philippines or in India, you know, is, is that a potential model that could work for maybe this the space that you're working in? Uh, I mean, we work with people all over the world. I mean, our team is international from Brazil to Mexico to Philippines and India. I mean, no issue. We, we work with wherever. Um, I know right now we are hiring a, an intern, a business development for our own in-house team. Uh, maybe Pierre, if you want to chat, I mean, maybe we can just throw it out there if anybody's looking for something to join join Horizon. Yeah, That's, uh, so trying trying to find find the right people with the right entrepreneur mindset to help us and focus on, on finding deals uh, for for us and also growing uh, so, some of the businesses that that we have uh, like, like the financial due diligence course that we have for instance. Uh, so so we're kind of looking for someone who's fairly autonomous you know as a real drive uh and uh we'll we'll do a bit of marketing and pure business development slash sales type of guy but, but going back to, to the geography yeah we, we actually see a lot of um of interest from india well we have a lot of conversation with, uh, with india indian companies uh, we have a few clients that are indian actually also and there uh i all view is in that region of the, of the world, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, India, there are amazing entrepreneurs, really good developers, and they are they are still operating on the market, which is growing fast but not mature, and they have huge potential to um, uh, to, to boom on the U.S. market. But and generally, that's also where we're trying to position ourselves as the long-term partner will be able to help them you know move from uh, their local um, local markets to to the us markets and to the european markets right so that yeah that's the opportunity uh, i think for um, such firms and the other could be that you know maybe these companies are already serving those markets but from their base in say india mm -hmm. or bangladesh and, and maybe infusing some of the things that you guys are doing when it comes to say digital marketing conversion rate optimization etc um, yeah. as well for them to acquire more more customers uh, no it totally uh, makes sense uh, you know thank you to, uh, pierre and akio uh, for for joining uh, bangladesh angels you know we look forward to more conversations in the future yeah well, thanks thanks a lot for, for having us thank you so much